0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, from HouseToPorts.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about a subject I have a feeling is near and dear to many of our listeners' hearts and hands mm-hmm. because... Whenever we periscope, Caroline. Oh yeah. Cuz we're, we're we're real high-tech live streaming kinds of gals. It's true. Whenever we get on that old periscope, there are always at least a few stuff mom never told you fans watching us
1: while they are knitting or crocheting. I know what a great combo of activities. Like yeah. creating something and then like listening to us chatter. And we've also received
0: from time to time some hand-knit presents mm-hmm. from listeners, which are always so special because obviously it takes a lot of time and care to knit something, much less go to the post office and send it. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're using stamps.com, which of course we urge you to. Um, so we, yeah, we have a lot of knitters yeah. in our audience. And Caroline, have you ever tried knitting before?
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm generally not used to people taking me seriously, but when I was in college, I was dating this weirdo whose mother was like real sweet, and all she wanted was for her weirdo son to date a normal girl, and he was, and that should say something that I'm like a normal girl in this situation. And when I was over one time at her house with the boyfriend for for dinner, I mentioned, like, you know, I've always kind of really wanted to knit. But, you know, again, not used to people, like, taking me seriously when I say things like that. Because to me, like, being like, I kind of want to learn to knit is the equivalent of, like, I kind of want to learn to, like, be a tightrope walker. Like, that could be cool, but I have no natural balance, so I'm in no danger of actually learning. Anyway, for Christmas, she got me a how to knit book that came with its own thing of yarn and plastic knitting needles. And I was so excited because I'm like, Oh, well, A, this is like so thoughtful. Someone actually listened to my weird whims and everything. And so I, I I think a lot of people listen to your weird whims now, Caroline. They're being being forced to. (laughs) Um, so anyway, I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I open the book. I get the, the yarn ready and step number one. I'm like, oh, it's already too hard. Like, how do I do the knot? And then they show you the steps. I need to watch YouTube videos. Like, I think that would be the more productive way for me to learn because trying to learn from pictures of people holding yarn and like, wait, wait, I need a picture between one and two. How did you get from one to two? Like, what did you do with that knot? I'm lost. And so I've never tried to learn again because I'm really not like a, I don't, You know, if I fail, I don't really necessarily try, try again. I have experienced the exact same
0: knitting intimidation because not only are the illustrations or photos hard to follow sometimes, but immediately almost from step one. They are speaking in their own language as well, because there's yeah. a whole vocabulary to knitting. And I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that I used to cross stitch and crochet all the time huh. as a child because I grew up in <laughs> Little House in the Prairie. I was going to say, um, but when I attempted to learn knitting when I was in college, i I just what I really wasn't able to um because i'm left handed and my friend who was teaching me is right handed and i couldn't we couldn't kind of
1: flip it that you should, way. You should have done it across from each other, right then it would' have looked the same probably done it in a mirror or something I don't, I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> So I'm sure our listeners probably have some suggestions on perhaps easier ways to yeah. get started knitting. Oh, you know what I want to do? What? I want to do that thing that I see on Pinterest all the time, which is like uh hip young women, like, hand, quote unquote, hand knitting those blankets. Oh, yeah. They use their arms as knitting needles with this huge, chunky, like, big, giant... Fabric strips of yarn things. skeins. See, I don't know the in-group language. I think fabric strips of yarn things is the official (laughs) term. Perfect. I'm glad I'm on the ball. But
0: doesn't it give you such an appreciation for the people who can knit? Yeah.
1: I'm in awe of it, honestly. I know. Well, I'm just impressed with anyone who gets over that first hump of like, how do you get from step one to step two? Yeah. (laughs) I sure don't know. Well, another intimidating factor when it
0: comes to knitting is its intricate history. Yeah. Because uh, (laughs) a lot of histories of knitting say, well, it it goes back a really long time. We're not exactly sure when we thought it was this certain point, but it turns out that wasn't knitting. That was something else. um but we do know generally speaking that knitting emerged in the Islamic world between the 9th and 11th centuries and it probably started with arab men making fishing nets
1: yeah there's this hilarious huffpo column about the history of knitting but it's 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 written in the way that like your smart ass friend would talk to you and it's hilarious but yeah this the writer was talking about how it likely the the technology so to speak or the technique probably got its start from people who were trying to to weave together these fishing nets to have a more productive uh fish-catching expedition, and then the next thing you know, they're making sweaters. Yeah, so from fishing nets to turtlenecks. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I feel like a fishing net sweater could be fashionable. Maybe well, if you belt it. All you need to do, cut a hole in it, you got a
0: poncho. Like you said, <laughs> belt it, but bada-bang. But very breezy. <laughs> You're off to the races. <laughs> um, but I was surprised to see that it was 9th to 11th centuries when it emerged, because I assumed that it stretched back to ancient history, because, oh, what about the Odyssey? with Penelope sitting there knitting a funeral
1: shroud. She was not knitting. She wasn't knitting. Mm -hmm. How did I not realize this? She was weaving. weaving. Yeah, because she had to weave on the the loom and then every night she undid it because that was how she staved off of her her suitors. She was like, oh, I'll pick one of you to marry once I'm done with this. uh, What was she doing? She was uh, weaving a funeral shroud for Odysseus. Mm -hmm. Oh, so just like really light fodder just like nothing yeah.
0: no big deal yeah once i'm once i'm done knitting or once i'm done weaving
1: this thing for my dead husband <laughs> you can date me guys well there's also the myth about is it it's a athena and arachne who had like a, a weave off yeah again not knitting and athena was like i'm obviously better but you're like so good that i better just go ahead and turn you into a spider cuz i'm jealous and i'm a goddess and i've got issues she probably go to goddess therapy or maybe just a knitting circle where she could Vent yeah. and relax. Like, get, get with Hera, you know, yeah. and and Persephone. I'm sure. Have a little wine. That sounds fun. I'm sure. I mean, they're goddesses. They're drunk all the time anyway. But another thing knitting is slash was not is this thing called knoll bending, which, yes, it's a needle craft. Yes, it looks like knitting. And yes, a lot of scholars thought it was knitting for a long time. But knoll bending is a knitting-like technique that uses just one needle to not string together. And what
0: a disappointing moment it was when scholars realized that this surviving scrap found in present-day Syria from the year 200 that was thought to be the oldest knitted thing turns out it was just knoll bending i mean i shouldn't say just (laughs) knoll bending because knoll bending is still an intricate craft in and of itself Uh, but but you know that had to be a bummer of a day like
1: oh man we thought i mean like i think it's cool in and of itself like oh cool ancient technology but or you know kind of ancient not super ancient but oh, oh it's but it's not knitting uh um and then there are these reddish brownish egyptian sandal socks which I'm pretty sure those were just made for cows because it looks like they were made to go over hoofed creatures. <laughs> but those are from the years, but sometime between 250 and 420 AD. Also, null bending, not knitting. Don't get confused. And I gotta tell you, Caroline, side note, when I
0: first read the word null bending, which listeners is spelled N-A-L-B-I-N-D-I-N-G. I immediately thought of narwhals. <laughs> and so in my mind, when I hear
1: <laughs> null using... bending, they're using their little <laughs> horns to knit. Yeah. So they're, yeah, well, cause you only have one needle in null bending. Oh my God. And so they use their horn. Oh my God. Illustrator listeners get on that. Could a narwhal null bend? Yes, they could. How many null bendings could a narwhal null bend if a null, narwhal could null bend? Ooh. Huh. Say that 10 times fast. Well, the confusing thing for me is like, OK, well, this clearly like knitting. Nalbinding got its start in the Islamic world. Why does it have a Scandinavian name? And it's purely because uh, Nalbinding was a technique that Scandinavians used during the Viking Age. So that's just where the name comes from. I'm sure it had its own name. In the Arabic or Islamic world that is just simply lost to us. But another interesting little tidbit, and I mean, we'll get back to knitting, knitting, don't worry. But another interesting tidbit is that meanwhile, while people are using the knoll bending technique in Scandinavia, in what is present day Syria and Egypt, people in what is now Peru were using the same technique as well to make hats and shawls. So this was like a it's just interesting to think about, like, oh, my God, this technology, this this narwhal technology just erupted.
0: Cross-cultural human ingenuity borrowed, of course, from narwhals.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and you said it was just like a ninth century Islamic thing.
0: <laughs> but knitting, knitting emerges in Egypt and spreads to Europe, And if we go to 1000 to 1400 AD, we have these Egyptian Coptic socks, which are this gorgeous artifact of early knitting and they were knit with blue and white cotton and they're the first knitted items we have. But if you look at how complex the patterns are, it's doubtful that they were the very first things. That people knit because I mean, yeah. or if they were the first things that someone knit ever, that is so impressive.
1: Well, no, they might be because the legend goes that the magical narwhal bestowed its knowledge to the Egyptians. So uh-huh. I'm sure the narwhals already had these gorgeous blue and white patterns, you know, blue and white ocean waves. We're putting it all together in this episode. It's what we do, Kristen. It's what we do. And as
0: knitting spread to Spain, it became a high class perk. It was something that really only the wealthy could afford.
1: Right. And or people in the church. So it was used if you were a prince or if you were like a, a priest, a, a priest. I guess. Shirt's sure. Priest. Yeah, but they would use gold or silver threads. So things, things are getting real fancy. Um, the first European knitting that modern archaeologists discovered, which was a detailed silk pillow cover was found in a Spanish princess tomb dating to 1275. And you know, to me, this really reminds me of our tarot card episode because in that episode, we talked about how those beautifully hand painted and elaborate cards migrated from the Islamic world to Europe, particularly to Spain and Italy. And it's and it's similar here. You see this beautiful handcrafted technology being brought to Europe from the Islamic world and becoming a perk, like you said, for the wealthy. And when we think of knitting
0: today, we usually think of it as a feminine pastime. And that kind of imagery of women sitting there quietly knitting goes back to art In the mid-14th century, so you have Italian and German painters starting to depict the Virgin Mary knitting while hanging out with baby Jesus. Like you do. You know, knitting him some diapers? Maybe. Who's to say? A little hat. A cape. Ooh, a (laughs) cape for the Lord. (laughs) He's super baby Jesus. And so what this means, though, the significance of this iconography is that knitting had clearly spread far and wide. And by this point was likely a common, unthreatening domestic pastime of women, because as Donna Cooler, author of the Encyclopedia of Knitting notes, it's highly unlikely that reverent altarpieces of the Madonna and Christ would have introduced this revolutionary knitting theme in there of her doing something that would have been male-dominated at the time. People would have been like, no, 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 that's super
1: disrespectful. Right, exactly. So she was clearly being depicted doing something that was already Feminized. And I think it's interesting too during this era that in 1465, in fact, possibly the earliest recorded professional knitter was a lady person. Oh. Yeah, named Marjorie Clayton of Ripon. Uh, she was described as a Cap knitter, but fair listeners, this is spelled C A P P E N I T T E R, all one word. So that could be cape knitter, which I like to imagine ties right back to Super Baby Jesus. Yes. Um But if you say it all as one word, knitter, it almost sounds German, like an angry knitting. Capknitter. Yeah, I don't know, but cap knitter. I'm assuming that that means. Caps, like a felted cap. Felted cap. And around the time that Marjorie Clayton of Ripon
0: was getting started, that was when knitting first appeared in the dictionary, coming from a root word meaning to not. Ah, okay. But as knitting becomes more organized and we have guilds
1: popping up, knitting... Becomes a dude thing. Well, yeah, because you have to keep in mind. So like knitting really catches on, right? Everybody's like, oh, ladies be knitting. Knitting's happening everywhere. Just dropped all my G's. Sorry. Um But by the end of the 16th century, kn- knitting is huge. It's big business and fancy men have to wear their fancy knitted stockings to maintain their fancy fashionable status. So what does this mean if men are like, we have to have our stockings, guys, dude bros, stocking dude bros? Well, that means that people are picking up on the fact that demand equals money. Yeah, so you have the rise of all male
0: knitting guilds, which emerge to protect trade secrets and improve the profession's quality. And listen, if you wanted to join one of these knitting guilds, it was no joke. You had to train for six years, three years as an apprentice to a master, three years. This is kind of cool, actually. Three years traveling the world, learning new techniques. And then after all of that, you would come home, take a knitting exam, (laughs) which involved having to knit all this stuff, including stockings, of course, Mm -hmm. because dudes need their stockings back then. As well as felted caps, which sound adorable. The cap knitter. The cap knitter. And then intricate wall hangings. And we saw some pictures of these, uh, knitting exam wall hangings that some of these dudes produced. And they are incredibly vibrant Mm -hmm. and colorful and intricate, displaying all these scenes. And yeah, knitting, oh, knitting was no joke. Well,
1: yeah, and they they even display biblical scenes. There's the one we saw had Adam and Eve, and there's like a lion and a unicorn. And I expected to see something out of Game of Thrones. Like, Where was the narwhal? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can that be our new catchphrase? Where was the
1: narwhal? Where's the
0: narwhal? You got it. <laughs> also, fun fact for these. Knitting fellas at the time. They were probably using knitting needles made of ivory, bone,
1: or tortoise. Whose bones?
0: The narwhals. <laughs> the narwhals. They <laughs> out of narwhal horns. Oh, so tragic. <laughs> but I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, that is pretty neat. I mean, what gorgeous tools you would use. I'm
1: sure. Um and it's interesting to think about these knitters. So they they train for so long, right? They train for years. And another thing that I love to think about is the idea that the wealthy had their favorite master knitters, almost the way that we think of like houses of design today and, and fancy highfalutin designers today. There were master knitters that different royal or noble families relied on to do their knitting, to do all their fancy golden thread gloves and silk pillowcases. And then, with some more human ingenuity, in
0: 1589, an Englishman named William Lee invents the knitting machine. Yeah. And this kind of changes the whole scene a bit. It sort of takes it down a notch from being this really elaborate art as it was to obviously being more widespread for mass manufacturing.
1: Yeah, so that by the time we hit the industrial revolution and Lee's technology has been improved upon this machinery has completely taken the trade out of artisans' hands. I mean, obviously they're probably, there's still people in their homes knitting, whether it's for their family or for neighbors or, you know, to make a little extra money on the side. But by and large, knitting becomes industrialized. And those machines required a
0: lot of skill and physical strength. So for that reason, men were mostly the ones running the big machines, which meant that they had domain over technology, not only using it, but of course learning new kinds as well, while women were stuck being the Penelope's of the group doing the spinning and prepping raw materials for knitting, as well as mending and then hand seaming the end result.
1: And what's interesting to see though is that across Europe, it's not so much because like women have a place. Women are clearly natural born seamers of things, but that these tasks just We're pretty much divided along strength lines. And this is coming from Joyce Burnett's book, Gender, Work, and Wages in Industrial Revolution Britain, which we did not read the whole thing. Spoiler. We just read the section on the gender division in uh, industrialized knitting. But if you look in Nottinghamshire, which I'm sure I said that wrong, because when you have these long names from England that have like 15 syllables, typically they're pronounced with two. So... Somebody can tell me. It's, it's not sure. It's probably not sure. <laughs> not sure. Uh, in 1819, we get a co-ed framework knitters union forming. So women were already involved in their trades union back then. And by 1845, women operated about 7%
0: of the knitting frames, though they would usually work on narrower frames because, again, It's all about the physical strength. And also in 1845, a parliamentary report on framework knitters, which I'm sure was just a real scintillating copy, Mm -hmm. emphasized equal opportunity. And in that, they wrote, quote, vast numbers of women and children. Oh, children. Okay. (laughs) It is 1845 are working side-by-side side with men, often employed in the same description of frames, making the same fabrics at the same rate of wages, the only advantage over them which the man possesses being his superior strength. Which, okay, it sounds sounds good. Basically, they're saying, <laughs> well, they're saying women can do the job, but they're also saying little well, children are doing the job, well, too. Well, they're
1: tiny fingers. Yes, yeah, so those little fingers. Somebody's got to climb into those machines. So much energy.
0: Uh, But 40 years later, women, no big surprise, were earning less working those same knitting machines. And men argue that they should be
1: relegated to smaller, less productive women's machines. And here's a side note a quote that I love that I really wanted to share. So, you know, during this time, there are wage disputes. Men are saying we should be making more because we're working on the bigger, more productive machines. Women should go over here to the smaller machines since they're weaker with their floating uteruses. But you get this guy, James Holmes, who's the secretary of one of those co-ed labor unions, and he told a parliamentary commission that the difference between men's and women's machines was basically false and made up. He said, quote, It is so convenient for men to believe that women cannot do certain things until they do it. And then they find that the impossible is done. Dang, James Holmes. So he's basically like, this is this is silly. But no matter, there was still that gender division. And in France, it was pretty much the same thing. But uh, you, you get the rise of these smaller, even smaller knitting machines that were meant for home use. And what's interesting to see is that manufacturers start targeting in their advertisements... Working class families basically saying, hey, ladies, ladies, this is the way to earn a living. You get to stay home and knit and raise your family. Stop being one of those awful mothers who goes to work. Now you can just knit at home. Yeah, they called it outwork, which was sending
0: the mending and seaming work to women's homes for them to do. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'm pretty sure that they were not paid very well for that work. Um, But it's interesting that these technological developments seem to culminate in sending people back home because families had been producing knitted goods as units a 100 years before. So you yeah. have almost a return not to the cottage industry. I mean, we're still talking in like bigger manufacturing terms, but they're outsourcing mm-hmm. to those cottage industries in a way.
1: Yeah. So then you're at least in France during this time anyway, you're just sending women back home to mine the hearth and home. And, you know, if they if they're, you know, working class women who have to help support their families by earning money, then at least they can do it at home. Well, and I wonder if that really cemented this association between knitting
0: and women in the home as, you know, the activity that women kind of do while the men are out working in the factories.
1: Well, I mean, but you've also got those class divisions to consider because yeah, okay, you had working class women and in this example it's working class French women using the smaller home knitting machines to make an extra buck but knitting this whole time it's still pretty consistent that like pastime knitting is a thing but that's still for women of a little bit higher of a social standing who have the time and don't need to knit for Extra income, and that's a theme that we're going to
0: revisit when we talk about the resurgence of knitting in recent years. Um, but briefly, I want to talk about knitting during World War One and Two, and I know that that's a huge leap from the Industrial Revolution. But during this time, we have the um, that image of women knitting even more ingrained in our culture because it was promoted as a patriotic duty mm-hmm. when the boys are at war it was women's jobs and children's jobs too school kids would get in on this as tiny, well tiny fingers Those tiny little fingers to knit knit their clothes and they would knit uh socks i believe mm-hmm. for the soldiers that they would send over there so there was this whole like knitting propaganda um during both wars and there was also knitting involved in spy work. Oh? Yeah. So this was really fascinating, Caroline. During World War II, there was a ban on mailing knitting patterns abroad in case they might be coded. Oh. Because if you look at the, you know, knitting instructions, I mean, it really does look like a secret code to me. That's why you should never trust a narwhal. Exactly. (laughs) To my untrained eye. So... You couldn't send any, um, any knitting patterns to your friends during those days, but the Belgian resistance employed, um, this group of old lady knitters whose houses were near the train tracks mm-hmm. who would watch the trains and they would knit secret messages into their knitting like according to like what kind of stitch they would use to let the resistance forces know what trains were coming through and who were on those trains. So then you mail the knitted final product? Yeah, and you're just like, oh yeah, I'm just like... Or they'd probably deliver it, you know? Be like, oh, I'm just giving this person a scarf. It's no big deal. But it has
1: secrets in it. Yeah, knitting secrets. Knitting
0: secrets. And I have... One final knitting secret for you. Oh, please. Okay. So, one of the coolest women that I've learned about recently was a British World War II spy named Phyllis Latour Doyle. And when she was 23, under the code name Genevieve. Oh. She parachuted into occupied Normandy to help out with the French resistance. Mm-hmm. And she would just bicycle around gathering information. And the codes that she would send back to the Allies were in, like, stitches that she would make um in this piece of silk that she had. And she would hide the silk and the codes in her knitting. What? Yeah. So she was just like, oh, I'm just a little... Lady just biking around. This is just my knitting. Don't mind me. I want to see that movie. Isn't that cool? I know.
1: Like knitting at war. (laughs) (laughs) Starring grannies and that lady on the bicycle. So I I
0: loved though this secret history of knitting.
1: Yeah. It's pretty amazing what people who have very little suspected of them, i.e. women, With their, what with their knitting and such can accomplish.
0: But think about how intense that must have been too, to live during a time when you couldn't even mail a knitting pattern to your friend in the States because secrets,
1: secrets. Well, yeah. And I love, I love reading about even the the World War Two efforts to like knit socks and scarves and stuff for soldiers abroad, because, yeah, like you said, it was totally propaganda. It was a feel good thing for everyone. It let people feel like they were participating in something. But then also, if you're the soldier in the trenches, like, no, a pair of new socks or knitted socks isn't going to make or break whether you survive or succeed or whatever. But it is a nice kind of homey reminder. Of home. A homey reminder of home. Oh, yes. Yes. Indeed. Well,
0: we got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to be in the swinging 70s, my friends. (laughs) So hang on to your knitting
1: needles.
0: (laughs) So we've gotten through our world wars. Yeah, just blowing through stuff. (sighs) And we're in the 1970s. And as UK-based Penelope Hemingway points out on her fantastic blog, Knitting Genealogist, once we get to that era, plus second wave feminism, there's been a lot of gendering back and forth of knitting, as we have clearly, hopefully, (laughs) explained And there were still gender divisions going on within knitting at that time.
1: Yeah. So these are some TV shows I would love to go back and catch snippets of. But she points out that the expert knitters on TV shows in the 70s tended to be men. Yeah. What are those shows? I need to watch them because they sound so soothing. Oh, I know. Oh, Oh, just like the clicking of the of the needles. ASMR City. (laughs) Seventies ASMR. Um, and she writes that it was pretty common to discover that both male and female knitters of this era had been taught by their grandfathers. I love that.
0: And I have a feeling that they were taught by their grandfathers because their grandfathers had been
1: soldiers and soldiers were taught to knit. Yeah, they well, yeah, you've got to be out there without your mama. To knit your socks for you. So if you had to repair a hole in something, you had to know how to do it yourself. You know, my father in the Navy had his own little knitting kit. I don't think I don't think he ever knitted. Or, like, even repaired a patch. I don't know. Maybe I'm selling my dad short. Yeah, maybe he was a secret knitter. (laughs) Secret knitter. We did establish before the break that knitting is full of secrets. But as Hemingway points out, despite this fact, despite that the expert television knitters tended to be men and the grandfathers were passing down their knitting secrets to their grandchildren, the whole, like, men knitting, quote-unquote, in public thing had generally fallen by the wayside. So it's still... It's still thought of as like a feminine pursuit. It's a feminine pastime, whether you're doing it because you need the scarf or whether you're doing it just to pass the time. Well, and feminine and so domestic, too. Yeah. So that women of that era who liked to knit or wanted to knit were almost classified as traitors to the cause, like to the second wave feminist cause. Which is something that Hemingway herself says she had experience with. She said that she felt she needed to hide her desire and her love of knitting. She writes, though, but the more I learned of the craft's history, the more I realized that knitting is a defiant feminist statement, not a sign of being cowed by male oppression. Moving beyond feminism, it's full of the triumph of the human spirit, creativity, creativity. Artistry and democracy. And in fact, there was some feminist
0: adoption even during that time of the DIY ethos more generally, as well as knitting and making your own clothes, Um, even outside of feminism during the Vietnam War, there was a resurgence of interest in crafts that aligned with uh, the protest lifestyle. Um, and Ms. Magazine, for instance, featured ads for homemade feminist clothes and jewelry, yeah. which is something that we see so much in
1: third-wave feminism mm-hmm. and uh, magazines like Bust. Right, yeah. Bust is one of those which started in the 90s. It was sort of on the forefront of this get-girls-crafting thing. It was seen as a way to sort of, I wanted to say get back to nature, but like that's obviously not what I mean. Like Get back to relying on yourself instead of relying on big corporations to provide your clothes and accessories. And we can see that trend reflected
0: directly in statistics from the Craft Yarn Council, which I'd love to see one of those council meetings. <laughs> I'm imagining all of them in very colorful knitted shawls. Uh, but they found the proportion of women under 45 who knew how to knit doubled between 1997 and 2002 from 9 to 18% and you know some third wave feminism was partially
1: to thank for that yeah, and in an article in the journal Third Space in 2008, writer Bethan Pentney emphasizes knitting's place as a third wave feminist practice, saying that if second wave feminists have been historicized as women who put down their knitting, third wave feminists may be characterized as those who have picked it back up again. And she links this to the whole Riot Girl movement's DIY aesthetic, getting out of the mall marketplace and getting into the sustainable marketplace. And
0: this takes me right on back to high school Caroline um when one of my best friends was very much in the DIY punk scene and a lot of them congregated at a specific house And uh, all the girls were super Riot girl y and there was all sorts of zine making. Of course, most of them were musicians, and a lot of them knit and sewed and made, if not their own clothes, they would make patches and buttons and all sorts of things. So knitting was very much an activity that was like constantly
1: going on as almost a political act for these young punks at yeah. the time. Well, yeah. And that's something that Elizabeth Graneveld uh, talked about too in an article in the Canadian review of American studies from 2010. She didn't disagree that knitting can be feminist, that it can be part of that DIY culture, but she has quibbles with specifically third wave feminisms, publications, commodification of it and of DIY culture, in addition to what she and Pentney in her article that we just talked about sees as ignoring the fact that for many women, like we talked about earlier, knitting is a form of underpaid labor or a way to save money on clothing. It's not part of this what she saw as consumer culture as politics that magazines like Bust or Bitch in its early days were peddling. She kind of almost sees it as a dishonest way of, of approaching this DIY ethos. Yeah, she describes it
0: as classist and a, quote, ironic iteration of idealized womanhood. And she distinguishes in the process between crafting, which requires disposable income and time and the knitting that women would be doing for work. And like you said, often underpaid work. So she, you know, raises her eyebrows at the idea of whether this is just a hip new hobby that makes you look like you are aware and, you know, taking a step back from the
1: mainstream. Or are you really just part of the fold? Are you another sheep? Well, yeah. And she points out like, well, who is their audience? It's, you know, the 22 year old white suburban college student are we leaving out whole groups of knitters of various classes races ages are we you know ignoring grandma um when we talk about how knitting is this like hip new thing it's not like your dusty grandma's habit and it's like wait, whoa 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 your grandma was parachuting into france with her knitting secrets
0: yeah i, I will say again um Speaking from personal experience, the rise of knitting and this renewed appreciation for handmade goods in particular is something that I almost wish had happened when I was younger because my family didn't have a lot of money and my mom made a lot of our clothes. And I was often sheepish about that, not to keep using the word sheep for some reason. <laughs> no, it's appropriate. <laughs> but uh, from that perspective, Groneveld's classist argument doesn't hold quite as much water because while, yeah, it does take disposable income and time to do this kind of crafting, I think that it had a wider impact of drawing appreciation to those kinds of handmade things that people
1: in lower income households could afford, who could make themselves. Yeah. And I wonder though, if she's not arguing that like, that's fine and good and, and people need to knit for different reasons or want to knit for different reasons. But when you talk about knitting purely as like a hip hobby for young people, are you leaving out the opportunity to appreciate people like your mom or like whoever is knitting because they want to provide for their family? And all of this being said, Grenville did acknowledge that in looking at like letters to the editor and, and things like that, that these magazines were receiving and publishing, that a lot of the readers looked at knitting as a pleasurable pastime, not as a political statement. So it's not like you have a bunch of people who are trying to reclaim knitting necessarily, much more like, oh, well, oh, this is a nice craft that I can do to provide for myself and, or, and or my family, or that can just be a soothing thing to do. Well, and
0: I would argue too that it gives you a sense of empowerment and agency because you are taking a ball of yarn that serves you really no purpose and making it into something for yourself or another person and you and I at the top of the podcast <laughs> went into great detail about how challenging that is and to be able to successfully make yourself something that can keep you warm Mm -hmm. I mean that's kind of incredible I think that that that's a lot more than just oh you're just you're just crafting because you have a little extra money and time
1: yeah and after all it was busts editor one of the founding editors Debbie Stoller who pinned the book stitch and bitch the knitter's handbook in 2003 which was sort of like a a watershed knitting moment it was um in terms of paving the way for knitting to be this like cool trendy okay thing to do and she pointed out that when you denigrate knitting you denigrate femininity and it this is another form of femphobia other people would argue knitting shouldn't be gendered but uh, Stoller's point is that like, yeah, like women have been doing this forever. Like don't crap all over knitting because it can be really rewarding. And I remember around that
0: time that Stitch and Bitch came out, Um, a much cooler <laughs> friend of mine gave me a bust magazine and it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before, because of course there were all of the craft aspects to it. Um, But I was like, oh, my gosh, this is. This is a magazine for, I didn't realize it so much at the time. I didn't have the language for it. But like, oh, like young feminists like me. Although there were
1: lots of cat eye glasses everywhere. <laughs> uh, well, Stitch and Bitch is purely an update on our grandmother's uh knitting circles one girl who wrote into bust said uh that her grandmother was so tickled that she was part of a stitch and bitch circle because her grandmother was part of a knit and natter circle so it's the same thing and that's where Groneveld's quibbles i think come in in terms of calling it an ironic iteration of idealized womanhood maybe insinuating that like are we truly appreciating knitting's history or are we just doing it because it's kind of funny? And I think for a lot of these girls, whatever their motivation for picking it up was, it's so clear that it turned into just a way of life for so many people. Yeah.
0: I have a feeling that the hardcore knitters in our audience do not do it because it's funny or ironic. I can't wait. And I cannot wait to hear from them Mm -hmm. on this topic and what got them into knitting. Um, And it's also been interesting to see since, you know, the early aughts and Stitch and Bitch, um, how knitting has gotten even more visible and political in the sense of yarn bombing Mm -hmm. and that whole thing. For anyone who's not aware of yarn bombing, it's essentially going out, rather than taking, say, spray paint and painting murals or graffiti in public spaces to make some kind of social or political statement or just to enhance the visuals in some kind of way, you take knitting and crocheting and wrap it around trees or park benches. Or in the case of the London Cast Off Knitting Club, you cover a whole tank in Denmark to protest the country's involvement in the Iraq War. Yeah. They covered it
1: in this massive pink blanket. Well, speaking of benches, uh, Kristen had sent me this link to this story about a 104 year old Yarn bombing grandma who, along with several other members of her community in Scotland, yarn bombed all of these benches as a way to just it was like half prank, half art project. And it's amazing to see, like, all of the secrecy that went into like, okay, well, don't tell anybody that we're going to be yarn bombing these benches. I know. And her story went viral across the Internet because it's,
0: you know, Which is kind of ironic because there's still the idea of knitting is what grandmas do. So you have this grandma who is knitting, but she's yarn bombing, which is something that hip kids today do to make statements
1: yeah and i mean it's definitely knitting has definitely made its way into the realm of political protest i mean not only did you have the tank in denmark getting yarn bombed but you have groups like the revolutionary knitting circle which knits anti-war banners and armbands but also holds knit ins as a form of public protest and people might argue like oh what are you accomplishing with this Well, I mean, you're certainly talking about it, aren't you? Especially when there's a whole group of people knitting in public together. And just in general,
0: knitting for charity has a long history. I'm going back again to our Craft Yarn Council meeting and their glorious shawls. In 2014, 60% of survey respondents from their group had made a project for charity. So, I mean, th- think about blankets, hats, scarves made for babies in hospitals, uh, people in homeless shelters or domestic violence shelters. There is also Beryl Sang's project called Tits Bits for breast cancer survivors.
1: Yeah, so she was knitting. She herself was a breast cancer survivor who was really turned off by all of the basically like boob replacement options. She was not digging it. And so she knitted a prosthetic. Breast and got a lot of other women in on the game. She launched this website, Tits Bits, where, which served as like a, a community for women to share their stories, share their pictures, uh, knit their own boobs, and mail them in to be auctioned off. And it's just sort of like a kitschy, kind of like we talked about in our ta- uh, mastectomy tattoo episode of like, it's just kind of a way to reclaim your body and express a little bit of humor at the same time once you've undergone this trauma. Well, and I can imagine that just the process
0: and the time that it would take to knit those, unless you're like a really fast knitter, I assume that uh, knitting something just takes years and years and years because I have no experience. Um, But I would imagine in that process, it's got to be really healing as you're going through that, you know, kind of having to sit there and, and reflect.
1: Well, yeah. And you're I mean, you're creating like these adorable boobs. I know. And some of them are multicolored. They've got the little nipple on them and everything. I kind of just want one. And I recently speaking of knitted boobs. I just saw a link to boob beanies for babies. So when moms are out and they're breastfeeding, they put this boob beanie on their baby's head. So you like you're glancing past. You're like, oh, my God, there's a boob. Oh, wait. No, it's not a boob. It's a baby. I'm confused. Wait, so the the beanie goes on the baby's head to yeah, look so like, like a boob? Yeah, so that as you're holding the baby up to your boob, there's like a knitted boob on top of the baby's head. Trompe <laughs> Um
0: I also enjoyed the knitting performance art by craftivist Casey Jenkins. Um, her piece was called Casting Off My Womb, and it took place in an Australian gallery where she sat for 28 days knitting from wool that she inserted into her vagina. And of course it was 28 days so that she would be on her period at some point during the project. And she talked about how challenging it was to knit with the period blood-soaked wool because it's wet and
1: heavy and just
0: harder to work with, as you can imagine. 28 days of that is just like, that
1: just to me spells yeast infection.
0: I know. it. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, <laughs> we watched a video of it and yeah. it, it it was very mesmerizing um she was just sitting naked with oh the yarns just coming out of her vagina okay just
1: coming out what was she was she making a scarf do we know what shes yes, making she was scarf. making a
0: scarf she made a scarf
1: yeah and she part of the idea is that it's confining she said because I'm attached to this knitting mm. so statements on women's bodies. Craftivism, man.
0: Yeah, craftivism is a real thing. We we have run
1: across theses and dissertations all about craftivism. Mm-hmm. People take it very seriously. And going back to Pentney in her 2008 paper, she talks about the reclamation of knitting, but she talks about it from the perspective of knitting needs to be claimed and reclaimed by a whole host of, Of people. It's she says that knitting is unique in its ability to attract politically motivated people, including feminists, DIY subcultures and queer communities, which is an ability that's furthered, she says, by these online knitting communities and blogs, most of which are geared towards women. But she argues, let's not forget the male knitters, the queer knitters, people of different genders and sexualities in order to push knitting out of this white, hetero, feminine box. And so I think it's interesting that here's a person, unlike Debbie Stoller, who was saying, let's embrace the femininity of the knitting tradition. Uh, Pentney's arguing, like, let's not make it feminine at all. Let's have everybody knit and get rid of this feminine connotation. Knitting for everyone. And I
0: mean, speaking of male knitters, there are more dudes getting in on the knitting action. And I, I still love the idea of grandfathers teaching their grandsons to knit. Um, there have been a number of trend pieces in recent years on men knitting and the side eye that they'll get if they're, say, knitting on the subway. Because people are like, oh, a man who's knitting. How strange.
1: Yeah, and a lot of guys in these trend pieces talk about how, yeah, like they get the side eye when they go into the yarn shop um, from some women who are like, Ugh, what are you doing in here? This is a, a lady space. Which, it shouldn't be that way. It should be for everybody. But it's interesting that the tone of a lot of these articles and interviews is claiming and reclaiming and re reclaiming knitting and from from whom, because over the centuries, we've clearly seen that knitting has just gone back and forth between being uh, wealthy and male and like super professionalized and like feminine and just in the home and a and a hobby. So I don't know. Like, do we need to do we need to gender knitting at all? Like, should, should we agree with Stoller and say, like, yes, it's a feminine practice and we need to embrace that femininity. Let's stop being afraid of feminine things. Or do we agree more with Pentney, who says, like, let's bring everybody into it.
0: I think if anything, gender wise, my stance would be don't let the femininity associated with knitting scare you away from it. Whether it's the embracing of femininity or the old school masculinity associated with it. I think that's like kind of besides the point. It's yeah. more a thing of like, you know, don't let it deter you. Yeah. Um. But it reminded me so much of stories that came out. I want to say like a few years ago that were hailing the first beer brewers being women because we think of beer as a man's drink and um there i don't know if there was a new study or what um that was um clarifying how back in the day women would brew the beer and so you have all these pieces of like ladies beer was actually originally something that we made and in these male knitting trend pieces exact same kinds of leads of like fellows this lady thing was actually something that we started and so it is uh, of course I love finding out the gendered origins of things. But I do think at a point, too, as in the case of knitting, it's like, do do we really need to
1: to do that today? Well, especially since knitting clearly originated with narwhals. Yeah. And I mean, boy narwhals, girl narwhals, spectrum, gender spectrum narwhals Mm -hmm. of all sexualities, like... No one's talking about them, you know? Yeah, they've really been left out, not in our conversation, but certainly in the greater conversation. That's right.
0: Well, if you're a narwhal or not, (laughs) we would certainly love to hear from you about this very brief history of knitting and the whole gendered aspect of it. And if you're a fellow knitter, and I know that we have guy knitters and crocheters in our audience. We want to hear from you, what your experience has been, um, people who adore knitting or know any knitting facts that we did not share. Please share them with us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
1: Well, I have a letter here from Micaiah. Uh, She says, this is a somewhat unconventional email to send you, but I wanted to tell you about something unconventional that your podcast has done for me. I am 18 years old now, and when I was about 16, I began listening to your podcast, which I really enjoy. I distinctly remember listening to your podcast where you discussed how women are referred to as ladies or lady rather than women, which I cannot seem to find in your huge archive of past podcasts, so I hope you remember what I'm talking about. Don't worry, Micaiah, we do. (laughs) She goes on to say, I was on my school bus and I remember thinking that the word lady didn't feel right for me. Girl and woman didn't seem to work either. Trying to call myself these things just felt wrong and awkward, but I brushed it off at the time. A short time later, I started thinking about my gender identity and how something wasn't right, which led to the path of my first identity as a demigirl and now as an agender person. Although I am now confident that I am agender, I will not forget how wonderful it felt to find the identity of demigirl. It felt so safe and secure to know that there was a word for who I was. I have spent the last couple of years coming to terms with being asexual, gray, aromantic, and agender. I like to say that I have all of the A-specific boxes ticked. And knowing that I am real and I'm not alone. I'd like to thank you for all of your podcasts, but especially for this particular one, which inadvertently sparked my journey into self-discovery and finding out who I am. Thank you so, so much and keep being awesome. Well, thank you, Micaiah, and you keep being awesome. Well, I've got a letter here from Ashleen about Ina
0: Garten. And she writes, The whole time I was listening to your episode about cooking shows, I was hoping that you would mention the barefoot Contessa Ina Garten. Sure enough, you mentioned her, but I was a little disappointed to find out you didn't seem to know about her impressive background. While has certainly enjoyed a lot of privilege in her life, I've always been so impressed by her pre-barefoot Contessa accomplishments. Long before becoming a successful food Network star, Ms. Garden worked in the White House in the Office of Management and Budget working on nuclear energy issues. She has an MBA from George Washington University and even has her pilot's license. Caroline can reassure her boyfriend (laughs) that she's a very educated, successful woman who really is living her best life by her own choice. Her trajectory reminds me so much of Julia Child's having embarked on a second career in cooking only after first achieving success in a less stereotypically feminine profession. Anyway, I just thought you two lovely feminists would want to know something my mom definitely did tell me that you didn't seem to know. She's a big fan of Ina Garten and an even bigger fan of providing her daughter with many different examples of strong, successful women. Oh, Ashleen! thank you so much for this letter. Shout out to Ina Garten and also shout out to your mom. Yeah. She sounds like a rad lady. Um, and listeners, keep your letters coming. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send them. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about knitting and narwhals, <laughs> head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com